welcome to a rather wintry episode of Green Signals, your no-nonsense, no-punches-pulled railway podcast, presented from Lincolnshire by me, Nigel Harris, and... And from Derbyshire by me, Richard Bowker. Indeed. Just before we, uh, we we kick off, just very briefly for us, we pay tribute to uh, to Alistair Darling, who died on November the 30th at the very early age of 70. It was a real shock. Um, and Alistair, in my view, um, which isn't to say I agreed with everything he did, because I didn't, um, was one of the more competent transport secretaries we've had. And also, behind the scenes, he was not the boring technocrat that the media presented him as. He was warm, friendly, wry, funny. Um, and I always enjoyed the meetings I had with him every few weeks for the four years he was at, uh, at, the, um, at the DFT. Richard, you must have known him a lot better. You will have seen him much more often. Um, I did know him well. Um, I, like you, I was deeply shocked and, and, and saddened. He was a, he was a decent man. Um, we had many great conversations and a couple of really good laughs, um, quite a few actually. Um, I didn't agree with some of the things he wanted to do, not least obviously the, the railway's um, uh, uh, bill of 2004, but I think it was a mark of him that although we disagreed, um, we still got on and um, he was incredibly decent. Um, so I, I, I'm de- desperately sad and I echo all you say. Interesting that you use the same word twice then, you use the word decent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the one word that appeared in all the tributes and obituaries to him, I read, right across the political yep. spectrum. He was uh, he was a good bloke, I felt, though, of course, I didn't agree with his stance on trams and, of course, abolishing the SRA and a number of other things, but you could always have the discussions with him, and he was very civilised. Anyway, I've written a piece, a tribute to Alistair, which is on our website, I think. Um, do have a read of that if you want to have a little peer behind um, behind the public face. So, moving on to... Um, to the meat of this uh, this episode, the weeks really seem to fly by producing these podcasts, don't they, Richard? Yes, they uh, do. God, as the, as the tail lamp of one podcast disappears down the track, you look the other way, and the headlamps of the next one are in in section, so to speak. Oh, well, uh, that's a nice analogy. I like do that you? Analogy. Do you like that's that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's 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 very railway. That that's good. There you go. I thought yeah. so too. I was lying awake last night thinking of that one. Um, anyway, last week's show was a good one, which we think they all are, of course featuring retired top railway manager Graham Eccles, who has an entirely justified reputation for really knowing his onions on the one hand and for speaking the unvarnished plain truth on the other. Um, And that can be a bit uncomfortable, Richard, can't it? I'm sure you've experienced it from time to time when you were working with him. Yeah, once or twice. (laughs) Once or twice. (laughs) You were never in any doubt what he thought anyway. No. Um, anyway, Graham gave a masterclass in how industrial relations on the railway have developed since BR days and how we've come to be mired in the current mess with yet another slew of reputation-wrecking driver's strikes imminent in the run-up to Christmas. Um, Richard, you've had a look at some of the reactions we've had to, uh, to that podcast? I, I have, but, but before we talk about those, um, did you see... Um, uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're recording this um, uh, 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 sort of a bit after the event, but did you see the, the tweet that Mark Harper, Secretary of State for Transport, put out about uh, Aslef drivers uh, and Labour having uh, parties over Christmas and wrecking your uh, everybody's uh, year end? I, I, I just couldn't believe 
um, that if you really wanted to resolve a dispute, that was the way around, that was the way to go about doing it. And I mean, I don't normally get remotely political, but um, I was so shocked by that, I actually um, responded accordingly. Um, uh, other people's reactions have been really interesting. Um, Phil Two Hoots uh, said, that's great, that's a great handle. He said, really great handles up there. Um, he said, so good to have the clear-sighted view and wise words from Mr. Eccles, experience counts. Absolutely concur with that. Yeah. Um, and Alan Morton said, an excellent background to the strike position for all sides from Graham. And obviously, we agree with both of those. But you had um, you, you spotted a tweet from a, a, a very interesting uh, quarter. Indeed, indeed. David Horn, the managing director of LNER, no less for it was he, um, said, um, I haven't worked for Graham Eccles since 2006, but listening to his interview with... Nigel and Richard on Green Signals has brought a big smile to my face. He is as wise and sharp as ever, and I'm looking forward to his next comeback. Is that more than Frank Sinatra? So uh, thank you, uh, thank you, David, for that. Just one comment on your views about Mark Harper's um, tweet. Can you imagine any circumstances in which Alistair Darwin would ever have said anything like that? I can't. Uh, no. Uh, because he just no, he just would have risen above that. Exactly. Just would not have occurred to him. But it was just the lack of self awareness um, and the fact that somebody somewhere thought, "Yeah, that'll do it," and pressed send. Exactly, uh, just quite extraordinary. Neil, you're quite right. Um, but he wouldn't have done that, Alistair. No, just thinking about it, Alistair, more than we have been doing, obviously, because it came to mind, came to to attention within within dying is that, you know, he was a statesman, wasn't he? Not just a politician, and we need more statesmen and less politicians. If you look at the calibre around the cabinet table now, where there's so so much self-serving backstabbing and spite, it's, is it any wonder that the political process is in such disrepute? Uh, no. <laughs> On that happy, positive note... <laughs> Sorry, I shall, I shall try, I'll try and cheer it up a bit. Anyway, I will cheer it up right now because on today's, sorry, on today's show we have something really positive. But before we dive right in, um, I should explain that we recorded two absolutely brilliant interviews at the weekend and they were so good. We have far too much material for one podcast. So the three of us quickly took the decision to do two separate episodes um, from the two interviews, the first of which you'll hear today. And that therefore meant we had to re-record the beginning and end bits of this um, of this podcast in particular. So those of you listening on audio can relax because you won't notice any difference. Those watching on YouTube, and many of you do surprisingly, and it continues to surprise me given that all you get to look at is uh, me and me mucker Richard jawing away about railways, but we are very welcome. Please keep coming. Um, those of you watching on YouTube will notice a difference. But we so wanted to bring you all this fantastic content. That's why we've done it in the way we decided. So if you ask most people involved with the railways in the UK to point to one place where, on the face of it at least, things seem to be going well, and they'll likely say Scotland. There's investment, electrification, reopenings, and a real sense of a joined-up operation that we just do not see south of Hadrian's Wall. Scotland's also embarked on a fascinating pilot scheme to scrap peak fares, which some will say is brave and progressive. Others, however, point to real concerns with yield, and I think that includes Richard, 
um, and a growing gap in the railway finances. And of course, once you've offered passengers something like this, it's very difficult to roll back from it. So have policymakers in Scotland just made something of a rod for their own backs. To discuss these points and many more besides, we are delighted to welcome to the show Alex Hines, Managing Director of Scotland's Railway, delivered, of course, through the ScotRail Alliance. Alex has had a somewhat stellar and varied career in the railway industry. He was an economist at the ORR. I didn't know that, actually. Strategic Planning Manager, Rail at Go Ahead. I didn't know him then. Um, Commercial Director at London Midland, Managing Director, Rail Development at Go Ahead, Managing Director at Northern Rail, and then Arriva Rail Northern. And since 2017, Managing Director of Scotland's Railway. Alex Hines, welcome to Green Signals. Mm, Good morning. I'm delighted to be here. I'm very pleased about that. So, Alex, let's just kick off with a big picture. Over the last few years, there's been a remarkable level of activity on Scotland's Railway. Many folks south of the border might look rather enviously, and we do, at electrification, railway reopenings, new stations and smaller but vitally important capacity and performance enhancement schemes that we all know make a huge difference. Put simply, put simply, how has this been possible in Scotland when it seems so difficult everywhere else? Well, that's a, that's a big question. Um, And I think to help me answer it, I would say that uh, Scotland has a national transport strategy and um, everything we do on the railway in Scotland is aligned with that national transport strategy, uh, which sounds uh, a bit motherhood and apple pie, but actually it's true and I think we can demonstrate it. And the national transport strategy in Scotland is underpinned by four things we're trying to do as a country. We're trying to reduce inequalities, we're trying to take climate action, we're trying to drive inclusive economic growth, and we're trying to improve the health and well-being of the people who live in Scotland. So everything you see us do through Transport Scotland's delivery partners, whether that's Network Rail Scotland or ScotRail, is aimed at delivering our part of a broader transport strategy. So the context, you know, is really quite different from some other places. It's sort of clearer and more aligned. Um, And obviously, uh, a railway level, we believe the railway is a system. We have a fragmented railway. uh, And that's why we have the alliance between ScotRail and Network Rail. Um, So, uh, and then we appoint one person who tries to oversee both, and that's me. Uh, And I think we can demonstrate by some of the uh, things we deliver for passengers and taxpayers that actually track and train working together is the best way to run a railway. Um, And no doubt during the course of our conversation, we'll touch on, you know, some of those things we're delivering right now. So um, we have a strategy and we have a plan and we're more than a railway. And just talking about that structural point then, because you, you, you mentioned there everything's sort of done in a, in a more kind of joined up, inclusive way. Yet nonetheless, uh, you know, Network Rail is still a legal entity. You're the, the, I suppose ScotRail, um, the, you know, the, the, the train company is a separate legal entity. So does this work by 
kind of force of personality really or is it is it more structurally integrated that how yeah. does day to day how does yeah. it actually work i mean it, it's a it's a brilliant question and there have been some highs and lows and there have been some things that worked and some, some things that didn't so uh the first thing to say is that um one of the things transport scotland does is when it uh, contracts with Network Rail Scotland or ScotRail, it sets a line target. So the best example of that is on performance, where they say to Network Rail Scotland and to ScotRail, your target is 92.5% PPM, and you are required to work together to deliver it. And so when we have our performance improvement executive meeting, which is a joint meeting between ScotRail and Network Rail, which I attend every four weeks, you can't tell in that room who works for who. Because it's just right. a bunch, it's just a bunch of railway professionals trying to get the trains to run time. Now, of course, further south, track and train don't have aligned performance targets. You might have a train operating company with a T minus three target, and you might have a network rail route with an on time target. And so, you know, you get these arguments around, well, what currency should we use and what's the target? And all that time you spend having that conversation is time you're not spending getting the trains to run on time. Now, when um, Abellio bid for the previous ScotRail franchise, they bid a Deep Alliance, they they bid an Alliance MD, an Alliance Agreement, and actually uh, that's not changed since, uh, since, since that time, 2014. Um, my predecessor pursued a policy of integration and he integrated lots of functions between ScotRail and Network Rail. And um, in my opinion, that didn't work very well because as you quite rightly point out, Richard, Network Rail Scotland isn't even a company. It's a bit of Network Rail Infrastructure Limited. Yeah. ScotRail, ScotRail Trains Limited is an incorporated entity in its own right. And so... The strategy of sort of integration without alignment actually, I think, led to lots of problems. So when I arrived in 2017, the railway in Scotland wasn't working terribly well. I consciously uncoupled some parts of the alliance and actually disintegrated Mm -hmm. some of it because my main priority was just to get ScotRail and Network Rail Scotland to work. Okay. the alliance doesn't actually employ anybody. So you either work for ScotRail or you work for Network Rail. And um, I'm a Network Rail employee and I'm a statutory director of ScotRail and I'm the MD of both. And I try and wear those two hats in, in balance. So um, I, you know, when I'm in Glasgow, uh, I literally divide my time between the ScotRail offices and the Network Rail offices. And in every interaction I have uh, in my job, I'm always wearing those two hats. It would be easy to pursue the narrow interest of one organisation in this alliance. But it, it actually, if you focus on the big picture and the joint interest, um, I think you can deliver great things. Um, so it, it, you know... It, it's had highs and lows. We've done some good things. We've done some less good things. Um, I think the Transport Scotland expect ScotRail and Network Rail uh, people to work together on the priorities of the Scottish ministers 
and it's my job to create an environment where people do that. I think it's a profoundly important point you make that structural and legal integration is not the same thing as aligned objectives for a, for Absolutely. a group of people. Yeah, and I, yeah. Uh, yeah. it makes and, perfect, and, make perfect sense. And I, and I think alignment is the strongest positive yeah. force, yeah. more so than integration. Yeah, I agree. Your point about the people in the room not knowing which work for what makes that point absolutely, doesn't it? Well, um, and, and here's a great example, right? So the target for Scott Rail and Network around 92.5% PPM, that is a whole industry measure, okay? So if the Scott Rail folk move the minutes and the PPM failures to Network Rail and the Network Rail folk move the minutes and the PPM failures to Network Rail, that doesn't help deliver the target. One of the things you said there, Alex, about, you know, it's, is it all, is too much of it maybe dependent on you, you know, because organisations which depend for the success on individual people, um, I mean, the the skills you've got to have there in the interpersonal skills, the balancing the two hats and all the rest of it, um, you've got to get that right, haven't you? So is, is, is it a bit too much based on you? I don't think so, if I'm honest. Um, you know, as you know, I came up through the train operating company business. And the reason why I came to Scotland to do this job is to actually learn the infrastructure as well. So actually, on the infrastructure side, I'm still learning. And, you know, I rely on, uh, you know, my team at Network Rail Scotland to keep keep me right on that. You know, my my job is to focus on the priorities that Scottish government want the the railway to deliver. uh, And they are five things. Everyone home safe every day, to reduce the net cost of the railway, to deliver net zero, to run a reliable railway, and for track and train to work together. And if and when I ever move on, my successor will do exactly those things. Okay. To To do this job, you do have to be relatively good at stakeholder management. Um, you know, Scotland is a very uh, noisy environment. You know, we've got a parliament and we've got a media. And we've got You know, the context is completely different. Um, when I was doing uh, the job of MD Northern, um, you know, I wasn't a public figure. I wasn't doing any of that under the scrutiny. Uh, whereas um, in Scotland, there's lots of scrutiny. Yeah, uh, and it makes it a more challenging environment in which to deliver, and we need we we spend lots of time with our stakeholders, understanding what they want, talking to them all the time in good times and bad, and making sure that the folk in ScotRail and Network Rail Scotland are delivering for those stakeholders. Because when we don't, it gets very noisy very quickly. Okay, let's let's turn to some operational stuff and start with one of the biggest issues facing the railway across the country, nowhere more so than Scotland, and that's infrastructure and climate resilience. Um, you had a particularly painful illustration of where it goes wrong at Carmont, um, and thereafter you got your helicopter, so there's something that Rishi Sunak would approve of, I'm sure, there. Um, but you've had your fair share of those challenges, and they continue in at the last conversation I had with you, you said something which still is going round in, in my mind. Oh, no, it was Sean uh, on the helicopter. He said, we have to look out for even a farmer changing the direction he ploughs the field. If he's been ploughing parallel with a railway, 
then that's fine. He said, if it changes the direction, plows at right angles to the railway, you get all those drainage channels pointing at, at your railway. So they're really down to the real macro level of that. I mean, is everything sort of back to normal following the recent disruption you had? And what sort of is it left you thinking about for the future in, in these issues? Because they are huge, mm. particularly in a hilly, mountainous, and dare one say it, dreek and wet country like Scotland. Mm. Well, I believe that running a safe and reliable railway in the face of climate change is the challenge of a generation. And we had a very, very painful lesson on the 12th of August 2020. Um, And what we know now, which we didn't know then, is climate change is affecting Scotland more than the other three nations of the UK. And this is where devolution of network rail is actually quite powerful because I've got some flexibility to do some different things north of the border rather than um, there being one one single approach. So since that terrible day, obviously, we've uh, spent lots of time on the infrastructure. Uh, We've changed the way we operate the weather in extreme and adverse weather. We've modified the high-speed trains and we believe we've become the first railway control to have full-time meteorologists in our control centre. So um, they have been an absolute game changer. We are now making better decisions earlier, which enables us to communicate them to customers and the public and people know what's going on. So, you know, we had a few weeks ago two red weather alerts in a week for rainfall. They weren't actually on the west of the country because it it rains three to five times more in the west than it does in the east. These red weather alerts were actually in the east of the country where arguably the infrastructure is less able to cope with extreme rainfall. rainfall. And we're making those decisions quicker. We we also took the decision that in the event of a med Met Office red weather alert. We don't run. We don't. We don't try and run trains in that area, because what the climate change experts will tell you. And by the way, everything they predicted is happening. I don't know whether you're tracking the climate trends this year, but they are terrifying. We are. We. We. You know. We're talking about trying to reduce carbon emissions to reduce global warming to one point five degrees. If this year is any indication of the future, we're on track for three degrees. Warm. Three degrees they're talking mm. about, aren't they? Um, you know, it, it's this is scary stuff. Uh, and, you know, we've equipped ourselves to better, uh, cha- you know, look after those challenges. So are we back to normal from that perspective? Yes, we absolutely are. Uh, I think we did a good job. One of our key KPIs is did we have any stranded trains? didn't have any stranded trains. Oh, right. Okay. We didn't didn't expose our passengers or staff to risk. And actually, we communicated what we were going to do so well that after the event, actually, the Cabinet Secretary for Transport, uh, Net Zero and Energy, uh, visited our control centre to say thank you to uh, the folk who work there. Obviously, it's an integrated control between ScotRail and Network Rail to say what a great job they've done. And then, of course, our sort of industry-leading social media presence means we can get our message across. 
You are you know, very good at that. We we well, I mean, it's a corporate capability. Again, it's not it's not a me thing. You know, we've in, we've invested in social media, and the Scott Rail and Network Rail accounts, Network Rail Scotland accounts, they are run by one team. So uh, it's the Scott Rail team who do Network Rail Scotland's uh, social media. And working together, the Scott Rail and Network Rail comms team do an amazing job. You know, they never blame each other. They can explain issues, whether they related to track or to train. And we specifically request our frontline teams, whether they're in Scott Rail or Network Rail, to, when they're first on site, just get loads of pictures and video. And we get it out on social media and we can explain to people. And once you show people the pictures and the videos, they go, they do I get, get it. it. I get I it. I did mean you corporately rather than you personally in that <laughs> good, respect. Good, good, um, good. Because, I mean, I'm sure, well, maybe the staff do like it, but one of the things I always enjoy in the winter is a steady stream of, of Scotland and network, Ray, you know what I'm going to say, um, videos of 37s on snowplows and plowing yes. drifts aside and some of the glorious images that guards have shot from the back cabs of trains of that wonderful yeah. landscape in a winter wonderland. So yeah, I do hope yeah, they continue yeah. doing that this uh, this year, Alex. They, they, ab- they absolutely will. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about trains. Let's just, just move on to trains briefly. You are uh, the last place in the country now still operating um, the venerable high-speed train, um, You've um, which I, I, d- I don't know whether that's because you've, you've had the foresight to realize that if you actually retire them you haven't got anything to replace them with as, as happened sort of south of the border so we've ended up with um you know sort of short formations and rolling stock charges what what is the rolling stock strategy for you know the train strategy for scotland because those they are getting on a bit now i mean they're you know they're not that much yeah. younger than i am so um what's the plan and i presume this is all part of a rolling program of electrification as well is it yeah so the strategy for Scott Rail Rolling Stock is aligned with the decarbonisation strategy. Right. So the, the, the strategy teams in Scott Rail and Network Rail work together and say, okay, we've got these fleets. We know we need to remove the diesel ones and replace them with carbon zero trains. When will they life expire? Because, of course, we don't want to replace trains earlier than we need to because trains are expensive. Sure. So uh, if you look at our fleet, uh, it's actually relatively old and it's getting older. The average fleet age in ScotRail is about 22 years. So it's the, wow, wrong, okay. si- it's the, it's the wrong side of 20 years. Uh, you know, if you say a train lasts for 40 years, you probably want the average age of your fleet to be 20, some older, some newer. So um, we... we Need, no, we need to remove diesel vehicles from the network, but we're not going to do it before those diesel trains are life expired. The high-speed trains are on lease to us for 2030. Um, so, um, you know, our, our anticipation would be uh, they get replaced with um, maybe a, a hybrid electric train uh, beyond then. We, we are looking at the possibility of whether there's a business case to replace them prior to 2030 and we'd like to go to the market and talk about that that requires the permission of um scottish government um so we know we need a new intercity train for scotland uh and we need to 
uh, agree that strategy sooner rather than later because 2030 is not very long away in railway terms. We need we we our procurement activity on electric trains and battery electric trains is very well advanced, uh, and actually we've been ready to go for some time. We're just getting clarity from the Scottish government around what the funding available is for that, and. The strategy there is to buy battery electric multiple units to exploit the bits of the network that we will partially electrify in the first instance. Because for Fife and Borders, our strategy is to partially electrify first and then fully electrify later. So for that, you have you need battery electric multiple units. So is, is that what's happening on Leavenmouth, Alex? Because I think that's electrified from Thornton Junction to Leavenmouth, isn't it? But obviously not electrified on the main line. So it is. It, Leavenmouth is being built electrification ready, but it right, is not. Okay. It, it is not being built with the, the electrification system in place. So, ah, if you right. if if you look at the drone if you look at the drone footage for Leavenmouth, yeah. all the uh, foundations for the electrification mass are in. They've been built as part of the project. Right. We're not we're not actually putting the wires up because obviously it takes time to procure a battery electric train. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We've also got some electrics in the Strathclyde area, which are approaching life expiry, and we need some new electric trains to replace them. So that's an electric for electric. It's not actually a decarbonisation project. It's just they're getting old and need replacing. So in 2020, Transport Scotland published its decarbonisation action plan. Um, And it basically said... uh, we need to decarbonise the railway in Scotland. We also need to drive modal shift. Scotland has some of the toughest climate change targets in the world and the trajectory to get there is also uh, enshrined in legislation. So UK net zero 2050 in Scotland, we're uh, 2045 net zero. And uh, when that strategy was published, it said we want to remove diesel vehicles from the network by 2035. Um, but it also committed to us refreshing that plan after three years so we are literally in the process between transport scotland scottish rail holdings scott rail and network rail of rewriting that decarbonization action plan obviously the world looks a wee bit different from three years ago Mm. uh, and money is tight so you know the commitment to decarbonization and electrification is undimmed the bit that's changed, of course, is the public finances are a bit tighter. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're working with the Scottish government on refreshing that strategy, and that will be published in due course. Right. But of course, you know, we we we're just about to complete the electrification of Barhead. Uh, we're on the park electrifying uh, East Kilbride. We've built Leavenmouth, which is electrification ready. We the, the the mega project we're going to deliver is essentially the electrification between Dunblane and uh, Aberdeen via Perth and Dundee, and we are already doing site investigation work, ground investigation work. We are taking down bridges which are foul of uh, an electrified railway. We're doing some of that work already, and. As I'm sure you're aware, we've done some great work to drive down the unit cost of electrification in Scotland. And one of the ways we've done that is to look at it as a programme. So uh, the Scottish Government gave us 120 million quid to go and upgrade power supply across the network in advance of electrification. 
and we get economies of scale rather than doing it on a project by project basis. And so, you know, even though we don't have the full and final authority for some of these schemes like Five Borders and Aberdeen, we're already on the park upgrading the power supply yeah. in anticipation of it. Brilliant. So it really is quite joined up and, you know, guess what? If, you, if you've got a long-term plan, kind of everyone knows how to put the pieces of the jigsaw together, you know? Yeah. It's just so good to hear all that, isn't it, Richard? That integrate, yes. integrated thinking, especially the power supplies. We wouldn't end up want to end up with a load of trains that take too much power, would we? Mm-hmm. Um, we've been there once before. But it is great to hear it. It really is, Alex. It's, it's, it's encouraging and inspirational and for reasons which I'm sure you'll appreciate frustrating for us to listen to because mm. it's just the sort of thing we need to um, to have down here. One of the hottest political topics in Scotland are the sleeper services. Uh, we're not going to talk about politics. You'll be delighted to know the sleepers today. Maybe we'll come to, back to that um, on another occasion. No, let's rephrase that. We will come back to that <laughs> on, another, on another occasion. But we want to talk about operational stuff and costs. Having spent tens of millions of pounds surely we could have bought quality rolling stock. Um, why the problems with it with the Mark 5s? We've seen TPE withdraw a virtually brand new fleet of CAF vehicles um, and the sleepers have, uh, have had the problem. What, what went wrong with, uh, with Circle as well? Was nationalising it the only way forward? So there's a number of questions there. The quality of the stock, um, the operator, hmm. the nationalisation question. Well, Over to you. Well, obviously, with my network rail hat on, Sleeper, a valued customer. In fact, I had dinner with Catherine Darbandi, the managing director, uh, earlier on this week. And I think, um, first of all, the separation of Sleeper from the main Scott Rail business, I think everyone regards as a roaring success. Um, and, you know, that, that has really worked because it's allowed Sleeper to focus on their market, which is, you know, pretty distinct and different. And they've done from- it well. And, and, and they've done it brilliantly, and their revenue line demonstrates that. Um, you know, you can. I'm trying to get on it next week, and I can't because it's full. Um, so the the new train introduction is painful, right? So we introduced the Hitachi three eight fives. They were late. Uh, we had issues with them, you know, widely publicised. You remember the windscreen? The windscreens, the ghost it was, images, the signals. You know, it, it's horrible. Um, and so, you know, Sleeper had their new train introduction challenges as well. But personally, as a customer, I think their new trains are an absolute game changer. I was pretty sceptical about whether a shower would work on board a train. Uh, and it does, and it's bloody brilliant. And actually, <laughs> you know, if if you if you look at the if you look at the commercial performance of sleeper um the, the people are voting with their feet you know that people people love it which is why it's full which is why i can't get on it there's this fantastic um an, uh, no it's not an anecdote fantastic fact so the sleeper takes in one year to fort william double the population of Fort William. So the economics of Sleeper is not the revenue it takes and the cost of the operation. The economics of Sleeper is what it does for Scotland PLC. 
Okay. Yeah. And and the biggest customer group, as I understand it, on Sleeper are you know relatively wealthy people from England who come up to Scotland on the Sleeper and spend loads of money. That is a good thing. So again, it's it's more than a railway. It's actually bringing money into Scotland, into the visitor economy, which is a big part of the economy in Scotland. And, you know, I think inbound tourism to Scotland last year grew by 28% or something. You know, right. brands, brands, brand Scotland is, is, uh, is strong around, around the globe. Mm. And, you know, the sleeper is real, you know, bucket list stuff. So, um, you know, I think Catherine Darbandi and her team at sleeper are doing a, a fab job. Um, and they're a, they're a key part of this transport strategy, which we talked about earlier on. Yeah, and so I, must what... admit, I, I, I used it not that recently, but um, had, the, um, had the pleasure of using it. And the <clears throat> breakfast that they did, I've got to say, was absolutely superb. Um, so, yeah, and I take your point about Scottish PLC. Yeah. But, but you've also just touched on what people pay. So let's just talk about, the big one, well, the big one for me, is, I suppose, is as thinking about the 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 income for the for the railway as a whole. So the decision to um, move to to scrap off peak fares, although it's quite complicated. When I was looking at it, it's it's quite detailed. Where you, you, you know, with season tickets unchanged and um, super off peaks were actually got rid of completely. So the, the, there's a bit of detail there, but it's a big decision. Right, because as, as Nigel said at the sort of the, 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 the top of the interview, really, it's one of those things that's quite difficult to row back from. So, how's it going? Is it working? And has, I mean, bottom line, Alex, has the yield tanked? <laughs> right, okay. So, so, if you step back from a minute and you look at what we do in ScotRail, our customer satisfaction is at record high levels. 91% customer satisfaction. Our satisfaction has never, has never been higher. So, and of course, we know we can make it better and we will. Um, so our existing customers are relatively satisfied, but a lot of people find rail expensive. And if we are going to decarbonize Scotland, we need to drive modal shift. And the price that people pay is a barrier to that. So the off-peak all day initiative is what I call a spend to decarbonise project. This is a £15 million investment by the Scottish Government to abolish peak fares for a trial of six months and see what happens. We expected it to increase our passenger numbers and we expected it to, uh, for it to cost us money. Uh, and it's, that's exactly what's happened. So, um, you know, we launched it in October. Actually, since then, we've had a tremendous amount of weather-related disruption. So it's actually been a little bit tricky to see what's actually been the underlying yeah. uh, performance of it. But we think we're about 4% busier in terms of passenger journeys. Right. And, we think, and we think we will deliver the trial within the budget we were given by the Scottish Government, which is £15 million for six months. And so... Yes, it has essentially given away some of our revenue, but I think context here is important because our fare box revenue this year is 325 million and we are the fastest growing train operating company in Britain. 
and we've recently upgraded our revenue forecast for this year by 50 million, five zero. So I think, you know, 15 million pounds is a, is a lot of money for the ScotRail coffers. But of course, our underlying business is trading brilliantly well. And of course, 15 million pounds in Scottish government terms is not a huge sum of money. Now, of course, Scottish ministers always have been responsible for fares and always will be. Um, and, you know, it's a great privilege to be part of this trial. It's gone really well. Uh, all the retail stuff worked well. Uh, we didn't see lots of overcrowding, which was a real risk. We added additional carriages to services where we thought we needed it. Um, and customers love it. Um, but obviously, the way we're going to evaluate the impact of the trial is ScotRail is going to do what it's done for us and Transport Scotland are going to do an evaluation of, uh, you know, these extra passengers we've got, where did they come from? Did they come from car? Did they come from bus? Did they make new trips? Do they just work from their homes less often? Uh, and then the Scottish Government will make a decision about about the future. Um, so few 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 sort of perspectives from mine. You're probably not going to change where you live, where you work, or sell your car on the basis of a six-month trial, are you? No. 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 So, so, so this trial is exactly that. We're just getting a taste of what the behavioural change uh, might be uh, if you wanted to make it a more permanent arrangement. Question mark. The other thing is because we were concerned about the risk of overcrowding, we deliberately didn't do any paid-for advertising. We used our own channels, and obviously we got lots of PR out of it. Um, yeah. And actually, the paid-for advertising starts in January, where we're actually going to push it quite hard. Okay. Right. Uh, because, of course, the autumn is generally busier than the new year. Yeah. So we're probably going to get... Well, we're going to have more surplus capacity in the new year. So we're going to push it much harder along the lines of reboot your commute. Um. And yeah, it's you know, someone, but, some, some, someone, not me, has got a big decision to make in the well, new year. Well, they have, but the the maths is really interesting, right? So you reckon you're about four percent busier, right? If your income base is around about three hundred fifty million, and it's costing you around fifteen million, then oddly enough, you're about that's costing you about four percent, four five percent, isn't it? So you, you're, I, I'm amazed by that. And, and excited, actually, because I thought the yield impact um, would be would be a, um, a lot more than that. What is interesting, though, of course, I suspect another factor in here is work from home, hybrid working. The the effect that the the, the season ticket, if you think of the, your basket affairs, the season ticket income was probably going down anyway. So we've got a lots of variables yeah. moving around, but but there's. But in terms of when we're seeing a leisure railway as well, really yeah. booming across the whole of the country, that kind of ratio of yield loss to volume growth, that, that's, that's positive. It is, isn't yeah. it? R Richard, just before we yeah. move off that point, um, for the sake of the many listeners and viewers, I'm sure, who are not railway managers or even accountants, do you want to just explain in a couple of sentences what yield is? So yield is, I mean, it's a really, I suppose it's a really simple thing that if you say, if, if, 
is, is price times volume, basically. So if something costs £10 and three people buy it, it's now, we've yielded £30. If we reduce the cost to £5, but only, but, and more people buy it, but say only five people buy it, our yield has actually gone down from £30 to £25. So more people are buying it, but we're actually getting a bit less revenue. Our yield has yield from those passengers has gone down. So that's why this what what Alex is explaining is, is so important. And and I am really encouraged by those by those numbers. Absolutely. And of course I think, it costs more to service those mm, people yeah, for yeah, less money, doesn't yeah, it? So. Yeah. yeah. I think Alex. The, sorry, Alex, go on. You were going I think say. no, I was just gonna say, I mean, if you did this pre-COVID when the rail market was relatively inelastic then it would have been commercial suicide. Yeah. But of course, since COVID, the rail market has become much more elastic. And actually, uh, Scotland has really embraced hybrid working. Yeah. Uh, so much so that Saturday is our busiest day on the railway in Scotland, which is not no. the case, which is not the no. case in England. No. In England. In England, even though there's been a leisure boom, um, which we've seen in Scotland, Monday to Fridays are still busier than Saturdays. In Scotland, yeah. that is not that is not, not the case. case. Saturdays are busiest day. So let's very briefly explain elastic and inelastic. So this is a good economist yeah, term sorry. here. So no, no, it's it's great. No, we're we're constantly. <laughs> Nigel is constantly saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop using words. Explain it in English. So, um, so and he's quite right. So if something is elastic, Always. if you if you put the price up. Um, a lot of people might decide they're very sensitive to it so they might stop buying it if something is inelastic like a season ticket you can almost say i can put it up quite a lot because they've got no choice they've got to do it so um the more inelastic a market is the more you can kind of price it up and as you say a season ticket market was quite inelastic a leisure market is much more elastic so you're 100 percent right i totally agree you couldn't have done this pre-covid but we've a different mix now haven't we yeah the good thing about an elastic market as you've just described it richard as well is that the railway is compelled if it's got any sense to up its game in terms of service um to give a better product to people because the elasticity works two ways doesn't it absolutely and one of the things i love about what alex is doing in scotland is you're you're sweating the the, the little stuff as well and i don't mean that in a condescending way i mean give you an example of that that i think is brilliant you're with your you're, you're putting more vehicles on uh, on trains to carry cycles so wow. you're attracting that market and i saw something where you're um, having, having to extend some platforms at some of the West Highland stations to be able to accommodate it. It's not just the big stuff. It's, it's, it's really back to your four main objectives of what Scotland's trying to achieve. Is that, how's that, how's that particular, is that pilot rolled out now or is it, are you still in the process yeah. of doing that? So in, in, the, in the National Transport Strategy for Scotland, there's, there's a hierarchy of modes and at the top is walking, wheeling, and cycling. That's yeah. great. We should all do more walking, wheeling, and cycling. And at the bottom is private car. And public transport sits in the middle, right? Yeah. So we want to make our rail network more attractive to people who walk, wheel, and cycle. So um, if you take cycling, we've got the Highland Explorer product, the Class 153s, which are just fabulous um 
but we can't we can't add them to six car one five sixes everywhere because we need seven car platforms there. So we we've we've done some good work between Scott Rail and Network Rail on some cheap and cheerful platform extension proposals for uh, the West Hind line, which hopefully Transport Scotland will be able to fund, and then we can use more services. We'll get a Highland Explorer vehicle added to them on the high speed trains. We actually took out a bay of four seats and put more cycle storage in there. And what a game changer that has been. It's been, you know, feedback from customers and crew has been absolutely superb. Uh, We, we, this, this, this summer we had the um, cycling championships in Scotland. Mm. We, we, that was a major event for us and it went brilliantly well. And the UCI, the organisers, have a legacy fund, believe it or not, uh, which we tapped into. Uh, and we're uh, labelling all the fleet to show customers where to get on the train if they've got a cycle. And also, um, you can now book a cycling space through the ScotRail app, which you didn't, but we weren't able to do before. So, and that's all, be, that's all being funded through the legacy fund. So, you know, um, what, what, this predates me, by the way. Um, the folk in ScotRail have a very, very strong customer instinct and we're always trying to get better all of the yeah. time. And I think, I think a lot of that, if I can say, goes, probably goes back to the days of people like you know, Chris Green. Chris Green. Uh, and others. Who it, it's, it has kind of always been thus, hasn't it, for as long as I can remember. And... You know, you're you're doing a great job, I have to say, of continuing that legacy, but it has been there for some time. Yeah, and developing it. And mm. the, the point you make, Richard, is is one which I've certainly noticed as well that Scotland isn't afraid to get into the detail of small no. schemes, which a lot of other people would say oh, it's not worth it. Well, it is worth mm. it, and there's real value in it. So, well done, Alex, and more power to your elbow. Um, it's it's as I say, it's inspiration and frustrating to hear, and I just hope that people <laughs> south of the border. Um, pay a bit of attention to this, not mm. least um, Merriman and Harper, who could do well to listen to some of the things that uh, that, that you're doing. Um, just one very last quick answer, Alex. Um, what's the biggest <laughs> challenge for Scotland Railways over the next five or ten years? If you had to boil it there, say that's the thing that's the biggest challenge. Uh, well, we need to continue to run a safe and reliable railway in the face of climate change. And we need to be more efficient because we consume lots of taxpayers' money and the public finances are tight. And we need to make sure that we continue to get the money we need to invest in our services. And that means we need to be efficient because we're competing directly with you know, investment in health, education, etc. And so that's why one of the things we attempt to do relentlessly is to drive down the unit cost of the railway yeah. so that the government continue to afford to buy it. And so whether you look at electrification or the cost of new stations, you know, we, can, we can build a new station in Scotland for 15 million quid. And guess what? We're building new stations. Uh, we can electrify railways for about two million per single track kilometre, and guess what? The Scottish government wants to buy it. So, that relentless drive for efficiency, and by the way, not at the expense of quality, because only the best will do uh, north of the border, is a key part of our agenda. So, I would say safety, reliability, 
efficiency. Good answer. Brilliant. Alex, we really do appreciate you taking the time out. I know you've got a busy schedule, so thanks ever so much for coming on the show. I'm sure you'll be back again at some point because there's plenty of things that uh, that we'd like to discuss, and we'd like to keep our finger on the pulse of the ongoing experience with affairs experiment, which is mm. uh, which is really really important. And you know, all the very best for Scotland's railway. And just smiling, Richard, given the discussion we had the other day about the problems of masses of luggage that can't be carried. Here we've got an operator taking seats out of a train. Indeed. Um, which is, we'll leave that one hanging in the air. Um, but thanks ever so much for coming on, Alex. We really appreciate it. And I hope that, in fact, both of us, both Richard and me, can, um, can pay a visit to Scotland fairly soon and we can break bread and see a bit of this. In, uh, in I always enjoy coming to Scotland. As you know, the last time I was there, I had a bit of a ticket issue at Queen Street. And I went the morning after to... Uh, to, to, to find out when I headed for the barrier and before I had a chance to speak, a smiling chap on the barrier said, oh, good morning, Nigel, what can we do for you today? <laughs> <laughs> Which gives a chap a good feeling. You know? but, um, but there you go. But thanks ever so much, Alex. Yeah. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Alex. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Well, what a fascinating discussion, Richard. Um, don't know about you, but I always find it really inspiring to listen to, to railway leaders who are so relentlessly half full and utterly determined to create a better railway. Um, and I come away from that really energised and inspired. How about you? Yeah, I did. And and it's not just um, half full and from a sort of a slightly foolish kind of way. I mean, Alex is one of the brightest and, and the best, and it's... Um, Yes, it's positive, but it's also grounded in really good organisation and great leadership and team building and you know and stakeholder management, which he's, he's, they've, they've done superbly. Um, so I, I came with really, really positive. I, I tell you the the my my sort of big sort of takeaways, I guess, from that were, were, were two things. One that when he talked about the fact that he didn't really need a, a sort of a legal vertical integration to make things work or a legally structured change i mean in fact he'd actually undone some of the uh, some of that that was um, interesting wasn't it? really interesting and what he'd actually done was created a sent uh, created aligned objectives right? and i think there is something really important for the rest of uh, the uk to listen to there um so that was important but the other thing that i came away really quite energized about was the fairs um work that's going on those numbers, I think I got my numbers a bit wrong, actually. Um, yeah, it was 15 million. Obviously, that was for six months. Uh, six months. Trial, yeah, well, it's a 12-month trial. When you're and the principle the, holds good, Richard. You were right the, on the principle. The principle, I think, is fine. And and yes, it is going to be a cost to the exchequer. But he hasn't, they haven't, as he said, they haven't really marketed it heavily yet. And that's going to generate um, more income, hopefully, for uh, without a commensurate increase in cost. It might be a little bit, but not a huge amount. So that, I thought, was really positive. Numbers were much um, better than I expected. Um, who, me, cynical accountant? No, no, they were much better than I expected. And if he gets that right, and if they do extend that, oof, we could be looking at something really interesting as a template for um, south of the border to, um, to maybe follow. Indeed. Um, <laughs> well, your state of mind was, was, was rather given away by your first question, which was, I think... Um, did your yield tank? Um, 
Yes. Okay. Which yeah. Poly- gave, sorry for that. <laughs> gave us all a bit of a hint as to where you were coming from. Mm. Uh, but I completely agree that it's not naive pie in the sky stuff, is it? Um, yeah. It's all really rooted from experience and the aligned objectives thing. You know, we ought to repeat it all the time. It, in all honesty, it's not the first time we've heard that. I mean, even Gerald Corbett going right back to the, here's my famous phrase, the early part of the 12th century used to talk about aligned objectives or misaligned objectives. Yeah. But Alex has actually made it work. He's made it real about it. it doesn't matter who owns it or what the formalities are. It's how you run it that really counts. And it, and it comes from within, and it comes from good leaders um, tapping into uh, a, a desire from good people to want to make things better. I mean, I I was lucky enough to see it on the West Coast Route Modernization 20-odd years ago when we, we we got everybody in a room to sort that out. And there was no legal structure there. There was no. I couldn't compel anybody to do anything. Um, but actually, a lot of people suddenly realised this was not the way to do it and there was a better way and they came together and we created aligned objectives. And that it, And it worked. And it can work that way again. There's nothing to be everybody pulling on the same rope, is there? No. It's, um, it's just really good. So we will be watching that, and I'm sure we'll be heading north of the border again fairly soon, if only digitally, to check on the process or progress of, of that FAIRS experiment. And like you, I wish him well, because there's a really exciting prospect for everybody to follow um, if it works as, um, as there are hints that it is doing. Um, and as, as we all hope it will. So good luck to Scotland as ever. Right, so that's about it for this week. Do let us know what you thought of today's show on at Green Signalers on X, formerly Twitter, together with any suggestions of things you think we should cover. We've got a heck of a list, but one or two people have just in passing comments have given us a really good idea, which is on the list. So you could make it. Please let us know what you think. Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe on podcast platforms and on YouTube. It really does make a big difference to us. Uh, and ensure as more people get to find out about Green Signals. Do um, add comments on YouTube and you can contact us on the info at address on the website. Um, we do try. We do try to answer all emails eventually, usually a bit slower in my case, as Richard and Steph will want to point out. But um, I'm not going to change the habits of a lifetime now. Um, do keep your questions coming in for our Christmas special by emailing us at info at greensignals.org. But for now, that's it. Do join us again for our next regular episode, which will be published on Wednesday, as usual. About what? We're not really that sure because it's always topical. Um, we've got the second. We have got the second part of Scotland's railway with Bill Reeve, of course, at the core of that show. And hopefully a rather special feature of something which is just a bit different and you'll have to wait to find out about that. But for now, it's goodbye from me, Nigel Harris in chilly Lincolnshire and... And it's goodbye from me, Richard Bowker. Mm-hmm.